The Map Room, a business owner's guide to the art of harnessing choice. The podcast that explores the world of business through the decisions owners face and the choices they create. Join the conversation with Paul Barnes and Stuart Brown as they walk through some of the toughest decisions you have to make while leading a business and how understanding the choices can be used to guide strategy and optimize outcomes. Brought to you by Map and a host of special guests. Well, Stuart, here we are. Tables have turned today. My turn to interview you. We've had some brilliant guests on the podcast so far, and we've got another one today, which is yourself. <laughs> Time will tell. So um, I've been really looking forward to this. Uh, Stuart's been a, a fantastic guide, mentor to me for a number of years now. We first met via a client relationship. So Stuart was a director of one of our clients, and um, we, we looked after that agency for a period of time, and Stuart then eventually uh, became chairman of our business at MAP and I've learned so much from him over these last few years I thought it would be a crying shame if we didn't give Stuart the opportunity to speak on the podcast because I'm, I'm sure he can give lots of value to our listeners today as well. So what I thought we would focus today on is I've been reflecting back on some of the conversations we've been having with clients, some of the things that clients bring to us as issues in their business, if, if you like, as they show up, and areas where I think and I hope Stuart can uh, give some insight into today to help other clients who are perhaps going through the same um, challenges, same areas in their business. And the first one is something that we have covered a, a few times on the podcast already, but it's something, again, that our clients are very interested in, which is the business sales process, because for a lot of our clients and a lot of business owners, they only ever sell a business once and it's obviously a huge moment in their lives not just in their careers and in in their business and you've actually been involved on multiple occasions Stuart both directly as a shareholder or an operator in a business and as an advisor as well so talk us through some of those experiences um, chronologically if you like in terms of your involvement in businesses that have been sold. Okay, um, let's go in the deep end then. Um, I often say the first time for me wasn't my first, if that makes any sense. And that was, um, it was my first MD role, and we can maybe come back on that. But I was involved in the sale of a business for two um, shareholders that ultimately had already exited that business. Um, and that's another um, an, another opportunity for for a discussion, I suppose. But my first involvement was uh, I was the representative of the seller. I was therefore dealing with the process. And whilst it wasn't uh, my business, I had no equity in that business, it was my first opportunity to experience the process, uh, learn from the process, actually get the, the shocks of the process that lots of people talk about. Um, Simon, for example, in our first episode spoke about uh, and really get to, on reflection, not at the time, understand the tactics that are in play from naively potentially me at the time as the seller, but more importantly the acquirer, and also the role and the tactics of the advisors that are involved, because I think that's a big thing that nobody really considers uh, before they start. So it was the usual thing, the thing that we spoke about plenty of times, you know, the first time you experienced due diligence, um, really hit you and and the massive thing that I, I am very passionate about these days is just the the huge distraction it was emotionally and commercially 
What was that experience like, Stuart, being the managing director of a business that you were not the shareholder in? Because that's very different, isn't it, from a lot of businesses, you know, the, the managing director is selling their own business. You're actually responsible for trying to get value for somebody else and you're right at the heart of making that happen. What was that responsibility, pressure, what did it feel like compared to other experiences? Um, it felt different because it was new. Um, I always think you look back in reflection um, and, you know, on our la last episode, um, you know, John Woodall spoke about the fact that whatever you do is new and everything you do is a better step forward. So I think it's on reflection maybe you realise it. But at the time, it was um, a position we'd got to where, in my opinion, that business needed to be sold. I'd actually become, I mentioned it was my first MD role, and that was because uh, we were a board of three. So I had, um, in essence, uh, joined that company. We had a, a, a joint venture between another business I was an equity shareholder in and this entity. And I joined this business and I became their operations director for a number of years. And what happened was there was, um, well, I suppose the simplest way of explaining it would be there was a falling out between the the majority shareholders and therefore we felt that the best uh, plan to extract value and the best plan for them as individuals their families and employees was to 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 work towards a sale and so i became md i had been operations director i had worked on the board for a number of years i became md with the sole intention of selling that business and and the two happened to be gentlemen so, so before i say it the two gentlemen uh, had actually left the business and were not engaged in the business so the the reason maybe sometimes i talk about the impact and the distraction is that I was doing this um, not all on my own. I had a really good, um, you used the word mentor earlier. I was uh, I was fortunate early on in my career to have a mentor as a non-exec. That's why I became one and I'm passionate about, about the value they add for businesses now. I couldn't have done it without that gentleman. Sadly, no longer with us, but I couldn't have done it without him. And it was actually the fact that I was running that business and in and and maybe going back to what you said earlier, in a small business, you are the main decision maker. So I was managing, you know, all of the sales team, all of those things, as well as being the MD. I was having to conduct what I felt at the time was cloak and dagger conversations, which maybe you know we can we can talk about later. Um, and that was all being done with the pressure of trying to find a solution, trying to find a resolution, because I believed it was the right thing to do. Um, despite the fact that, you know, I, I suppose a little funny story out of it is I'd not said anything to my wife. We were re we were only newly married at the time. So I was director of this business. In fact, I was MD of the business when we got married. Um, and we were looking to sell this business. And it's not the kind of thing that you say to your new wife, oh, by the way, I'm just about to put myself out of a job. Um, and we, their interest was races. We were at, uh, at Chester Races. We're all sat there. And one of the shareholders walks over and the first thing he says to Joanne is so what's it like coming out to lunch with some millionaires then which was uh went down like uh, a cup of cold sick as we say in Warrington and uh it just you know my wife suddenly thought then that you know I'd either kept something from her or not said something so uh you know that that is also a lesson I went through really in terms of the uh, not getting involved in the hype and the emotion of something and how do you do that so Obviously, as we've said before, it's it's a huge moment and experience that 
founders are going through when they're looking to sell the business. It's a long experience as well, isn't it? It's a long process selling a business. How do you, how do they? How, what would your advice be for them? Keeping their feet on the ground week after week when they're going through something that's effectively taking over their life. It's a difficult one because you can only be yourself in a situation and you can only react to uh, the pressure, the emotion that is is natural to you. And whether or not I learned from it, um, sometimes my reactions will go from one extreme to another. And therefore, when it came round to out sort of the the first significant time for me when I was selling, you know, a life-changing opportunity, um, selling a business, I, uh, you know, didn't mention anything at all to anybody. And that was because I was, at that point, uh, mindful of the fact that most of these things don't happen. In fact, it's probably worth mentioning that the deal we were talking about there, my first time, that deal didn't actually complete. So that business was subsequently sold with an, with an alternative bidder, but that one uh, didn't happen for a number of reasons uh, but so when it came round to me and my first opportunity uh, it's really something that I tried to keep almost as if it wasn't me it, that might sound strange but distancing myself from the opportunity distancing myself from the um, result so that's about focusing on the process not the outcome you said so it's we're committing to a process you talked to me about you know, we're committing to going through this process and taking the steps that need to be taken. We're not getting our mindset on we're going to get a successful sale at the end of it because that can be dangerous focusing on something that may or may not happen and large parts of that are out of your control. Absolutely. That point, I mean, it's, you know, it's as basic as, you know, using the first example of somebody who had mentally and in that instance physically started to spend cash they didn't have and that becomes a problem. And and I've seen that subsequently, you know, that's not for today's conversation, but, you know, I've seen people do that literally spending money they don't yet have. And therefore, then that puts pressure on that transaction. If it doesn't happen, it puts people, you know, one step forward, maybe two steps back. So as I say, whilst it was, you know, committing to the process and going into it with the absolute commitment, ambition to get it across the line, there are lots of reasons that are out of your control why that transaction might not happen. And therefore, you know, I'm sure I'll do it numerous times today. I always bring everything back to sporting analogies. It is that, you know, analogy of a coach saying, well, look, you know, worry about your own performance. The result will will end up being what it is. And so that was what it was for me. It was literally um, distancing myself to the point where, um, again, the, the day of completion... Uh, that it was, you know, nothing to do with COVID is before that, but it was a remote completion and it wasn't everyone sat on a table. Uh, it also involved, um, uh, for reasons that are, uh, uh, it's not worth going into, they're not confidential, but the, it was also in um, different time zones. It involved some parties in the States that we sat in a legal office and I've never understood this thing of, you know, we worked all through the night to get this thing across the line. I just sat there and said, right, I'm going home now. And if it happens, it happens. Send me, send me a text later. And that money's either in my bank or it's not. And I went home. And that's that's the way in which I had to deal with it. You know, had I sat there and done the thing that I've seen other people do, sitting there sweating on the result, I thought, right, we have now done everything. It's the other side's job now to finalise these last hurdles. Um if it happens, it happens. If it doesn't, it doesn't. We've done everything. So we've focused quite a bit on mindset there, Stuart, and I want to move on to the process and the experience of the process in a second. But I've just got one more question around 
the mindset and the the mental you know what's going on mentally through this process and it's more about the other side of the transaction we've talked about building up towards the transaction what did you feel on the other side of that first major business sale that you executed i think the first feeling was numbness if i'm honest um i've often said and i found some people who don't wish to believe me and i found other people who've been through the process who absolutely recognize it it was almost an anticlimax now, whether that was because I hadn't, um, you know, mentally rehearsed, I hadn't visualised what that would look like, it was almost a, um, you put so much effort in to the due diligence process and you put so much effort into something which ultimately is, is a, you know, a huge win. And I'm not going to say it's a huge loss because, you, you know, you have to consider that, that if it doesn't happen, you, you know, you're still back where you were. You haven't lost anything. It's the opportunity maybe you've lost. And, you sat looking at, um, again, without wishing to sound crass or disrespectful to anyone, you sound looking at a, a life-changing bank balance. And it almost doesn't mean anything. Um, it's interesting. Um, we did a, if you remember, we did one after your success with Go Proposal. And, you know, James said there, one of the things was, you suddenly, you know, still can't get a Tyler. I still have, I still have to get my kids to school. And, and those kind of things are real. And it, it's a strange one that, I just remember feeling this anticlimax, and it took me a while. And um, you know, the only other person, Matt Johnson at Form, was somebody who you know had a really good conversation with, who who went through a similar battle as I did with that. And I think, in retrospect, I was probably depressed for nine months. And that, and that sounds silly, but I think you got to be, you know we've got to be open and honest about this. Which was, I ticked, I ticked so many boxes that I'd been working towards in my mind that mattered. And suddenly, the other side of that transaction, those things that I thought that mattered didn't matter, or didn't matter as much as I thought they did. Um, and I realised that it was about fulfilment. And it was actually my father-in-law who said, you know, we were, you know, again, I'm going to say nine, ten months afterwards, and we're talking about something, and, you know, and I was just saying, like, I just can't sort of get my mojo. And it may have also been the fact that, you know, at the same time, I was, I was still a full-time MD of a different business at the time, and maybe that's not the best place to be um and it was him who coined the phrase fulfillment and i'll always be grateful for him for that because it made me think that and it is something that you've heard me talk about a lot uh, you know between ourselves and and with other clients you know fulfillment is a huge thing and i realized then that it was about finding the things that you know the or the headspace if you like and that comes back to the result is great but the result is not the be all then end all it's what it does for you positively and potentially negatively that you have to think through. And that's one of the things I do try and get people to believe now who I either think are racing into these things or maybe just not um, considering what life will be like after a transaction. So is the advice here then about taking the time to think about what fulfilment is for you and that may or may not involve trying to sell your business as opposed to what most people do, which is love this idea of cashing in and selling my business then get to the other side and they've not actually prepared themselves mentally for what comes next i think that's massive but i think that's a few things i think one is you know there has there has become i was guilty of it and i think it's got worse the the you know when i when i owned a business we were not founders you know that that it just didn't i didn't mean i didn't found the business i did but that phrase didn't exist that phrase has come from america it's come from, you know, there are founders who believe their job now is to found it, 
fund it and flip it. And I think that very often there is a case now that, you know, there are entrepreneurs by name who believe their job is to raise finance and sell a business. And I think somehow that still has got this potentially um, shallow status with it. So I I think the sale is one thing. I think what you said earlier, which is finding a fulfilment, is a separate line of understanding that you need because that drives the whether there is a desire to sell or a desire to have your business and have the things that you want that's that's a separate um discussion i think but you know in terms of the fulfillment element of it is probably taking the time to understand what it is you want from it as i say there is a we often talk with clients about um potential is an earn out in a business and that suits some people and suits what they want um the the first significant opportunity i had um as i mentioned earlier it was it was a u.s acquisition a u.s uh, nasdaq listed business that bought us and that was thank you very much you know as blunt as here's your check and don't knock on our door on monday um now that wasn't as hard for me because i was uh i was actually working in a, in another business at the time but for the guy who was working that business full time my other business partner in that gary you know he, he had to make that decision what what do i what do we do next and i do think that part of the risk and i've made this mistake paul which is why i want to say it when you focus on the process and potentially focus on the result you are missing the massive third piece which is what about life after and what is that and is it you want to exit we talk about is exit binary we've, we've spoke about this before uh, again you know between ourselves and publicly is exit binary do you wish to sell that business and leave and do something different do you wish to you know i'm at an age where i could retire you're obviously still a lot a lot younger than me and what do you want to do and what matters for me is that whatever's got you so far is the next thing you're going to do take you um into a place where you're going to be happier because i know lots of people who talk about selling their business because they think it's what should happen and haven't maybe considered is this the right thing for me now at my age my family my ambition etc etc that's really interesting just adding to that point about the founder syndrome if you like about flipping a business there's also a lot in gurus if you like the press whatever you want to call it about the concept of a lifestyle business and i think there's this negative connotation we've talked about that we think inappropriately assigned to lifestyle businesses as though it's a negative and as though it's a failing as though it's lacking ambition but the other way to add value to you and to your family and to get fulfillment is to run a really good lifestyle business that gives you profit allows you to do the things that you want to do and sometimes that is a much better future than exiting a business that actually you might really enjoy running and you might have episodes where you don't enjoy running it and you feel like you're ready to throw the towel in and to achieve that exit but as we've said it's taking the time to think what's causing that mental baggage what's causing that lack of fulfillment at that moment in time is it a short-term thing is it is it a permanent thing fundamentally do you still enjoy the thing that you do and the the reason that you set up the business and the vision has it been derailed by market conditions by circumstances rather than you actually have just changed and want to do something else i think there's also that driver of how do you see yourself i mean one of the things that i always find odd 
Um, although, you know, we both know I don't always see the world in the same way everybody else does, is, you know, the the chat, you go somewhere, and I used to hate this with, you know, the some kind of work event or some kind of networking thing, whatever they describe it as, and somebody says, what do you do? And it's that we almost value ourselves by the job we perform. Now, you know, I think that's a very dated uh, view of life, but it does still happen. And if I go back to you, the question you asked me at the very outset, about you know what the first time this happened to me and I explained that I was selling it on behalf of somebody else one of the reasons and the, and the main reason that transaction didn't happen at that time is that we got all the way through the due diligence and just prior to completion the majority shareholder sat there and he was honest about it and he sat down with me and he said if I sign this paper who am I and what am I tomorrow morning because he he was the founder he was the he was the driving force behind that business, and he was the reason that business was the success it was. Um, and so he found he had a real problem in uh, assimilating his own value to this thing if he sold it. And I see that you know lots and lots of times. So I think that's another key thing that people need to uh, get in their head. In that first example, it brings me on to my next question actually, because it was about a partnership style business effectively of, yeah. of equal shareholders, and that is not uncommon either people setting up together in business or at some point on their journey making the decision to have a business partner and clearly that throws up lots of challenges how would you describe the challenges of a partnership style business and how would you navigate that i think the first i'd throw a question back i appreciate you're asking a question today paul not me but i'll throw a question back which is does a partnership ever really exist you know so there are, you know, yes, there's a legal entity of a partnership and there is a limited company and there's, you know, um, you know, equal, potentially equal shareholders. But I think it's really important that within that structure, roles and responsibilities are clear. They're clear between those people, they're clear between the equity holders, uh, but they're also clear for the staff, they're clear for the customers. I do think that many, many business owners don't um, fully appreciate how they and their structure needs to be recognised and appreciated internally and externally. You know, one of, uh, uh, you know, I said just said moments ago about, you know, the founder phrase didn't exist. You know, I probably spent the first, first I don't know, 25 years of my working life where there was no such thing as joint MD. You know, what that is, I mean, the, the phrase to me, managing director means what it says on the tin, managing partner. You know, and yet there is joint MDs, and I've never understood that, and I think it must confuse uh, you know, the living daylights out of out of most um, clients and and staff. So I think that where you have a partnership, I think this this is where genuinely, and I don't wish to be disrespectful to anybody, most small business owners mix the role of shareholder and director, and they don't differentiate the difference because. When you are acting in that business, and specifically when you employ people, you have to behave whether you own equity in that business or not. You, you asked at the start about me selling a business and where I wasn't equity, and I appreciate that in lots of that for our audience and our clients, you know, they are the business owners. But in, in, in lots of the rest of the world and in lots of, um, you know, if you speak to um, John who came in, the corporate lawyer, there'll be lots of transactions they do where, you know, the shareholding is, is so massive, varied and all over the place. And it's not the, you know, it's not the executives, it's not the board necessarily. So I do think it really matters that 
what do we mean by partnership in that instance? Do we mean this business is owned by two, three, four shareholders? That's one thing. Or do we mean it is operated and it's run by, you know, committee, for example? So they're the things for me that I think we really need to look at and look at the tools that maybe can help you um, dissect those roles. So what I mean, just to be specific, is where you, like you said, I'm not talking about partnership in the literal sense of the word in terms of a limited liability partnership or a partnership per, per HMRC company's house, the legal structure. I'm talking about people who have equal shareholding in a business. So they both own 50% and therefore you get the challenges of how do we make decisions? What happens if we fall out? Often, not always, but often both of those people perceive that they want to be the managing director and they want to have that title and they want to have that decision-making power. And the word I've written here is two words, actually, inertia and stalemate. Often what holds them businesses back is that we've seen it so many times, they go years without resolving something that needed to be resolved and it's been pushed under the carpet because there wasn't the mechanism for two people that fundamentally disagree to reach a conclusion and move forward. It's not just about two people, Paul, and I, and I appreciate what you're saying there. It's, it, you know, I've seen it where there's, as I said, three, four, six, five shareholders. It's It's the mechanism for which there is a dispute because what often happens is you know a team comes together so let's say it's got to be at least two and it could be as many as as, as exist a cooperative style environment so a team come together what drove that in the first instance often is I, I wish to be my own boss I don't wish so therefore that mindset stops them accepting there is one MD there is one uh, there is one um, lead, and we'll come back to leadership because that's very different. Um, but it's about sitting there and getting people to understand that, okay, how do you agree to disagree? Because if you just sit there and use that phrase, agree to disagree, that's where your inertia comes from. You know, um, you know, we're gonna we're gonna put new wallpaper in the office. Let's just use something, you know, something silly. Uh, okay, is it striped? Is it is it plain? And the reason nobody ever does it because no, the people couldn't agree. So there needs to be something that says, first of all, I'm a big believer in roles and responsibilities. So if there's more, you know, two or more people, you've got to be very clear on the roles of those people. So this is over and above the ownership. What do they do? What do they get paid for? What are they accountable for? And what are they responsible for? And aside from that, then, how do disputes get resolved? And it could be, um, you know, I, I talk to other clients where, you know, uh, and we'll use three in the example, not two in this one, or an odd number, that, you know, two can't go against one or three can't go against two. And therefore, there is protected voting rights, all those things that people can put in, which when most people start a business, they don't, they don't consider because with respect, they don't know they've not needed it. And, you know, lots of the instances that we've been involved in the last few years will tend to be where there's vanilla articles of association and therefore they don't they tend not to have those items in or they believe that their articles cover them when they don't have a shareholders agreement so all the things that i think it's really important to to have documented very clearly that says this is how the company will behave this is how we will behave between ourselves and as employees and this is what we'll do to um make decisions and accelerate and this is how we'll do dispute resolution we'll stop that inertia to use your phrase inertia i like to talk about systematic versus symptomatic issues 
and what you're talking about there cuts right through to a systematic issue. So using your wallpaper uh, idea, which is great, is that's the symptom. We can't agree on the wallpaper, but the, the system that's missing is roles and responsibilities or articles of association. It's something that you need to get to the bottom of to stop those issues recurring and taking the time to, to fix it at source, isn't it? Brilliant. So moving the conversation on then, we've talked there about the inertia that's created possibly in some sty- some sort of partnership style relationship in a business and, and the challenges that that cause. What are some of the other common challenges you think that hold back businesses from achieving their potential aside from the things that we've already discussed? Okay, well, if, we, if we're going to say common, let's um, define what we mean by common. So we've got, I suppose, two forms of commonality, haven't we, Paul? We've got across the map universe that we can see, so over 100 digital agencies that we can we can see how they operate and who does well and who who maybe is stuck and who's who's going forwards, who's going backwards, et cetera, et cetera. That's one thing. And I think also maybe wider than that is commonality across, um, you know, all sectors. I think the commonality for me is it's always about people. And when I say people, I mean the culture. And whether the culture exists, whether you've planned it, Go back to your systematic or symptomatic. That sounds like uh, electromatic. I'll do that dance in a minute. Um, is that the culture exists whether you planned it or you didn't, and and the culture is the is the daily uh, behavioural delivery that you see from all your people. So uh, the the number one thing that I think stops every team, and so this is more again more common than business. Let, we can talk about sport. We can do all that kind of thing. Is culture. And the culture is, is is what will either accelerate you towards where you want to get to, will rip you apart if to go back on some of your partnership questions, or will get everybody on the same page. That's the biggest thing for me, culture. I think if you asked the majority of business owners, they would say they've got a good culture, wouldn't they? So what are some of the practical things that might be showing up that suggest that there are some weaknesses or some challenges with culture, if you like, to help business owners to see those blind spots? I think there's uh, the classic case of you don't know what you don't know and you don't recognise what you can't see. Culture is... the One of the best definitions I've ever seen on culture is culture is what happens around here when no one else is looking. Because most business owners uh, will come back to the, the you know, the, the, the sort of founder mentality is they have a deep-rooted emotional bias for their business. And they wanted to succeed, and sometimes this is comes back to inertia, Paul. They fail to rec- they fail to address systematic problems because they fail to see them and recognise them, and they brush them under the carpet because we've got a great culture because no one argues. Oh, that's interesting. Nobody argues. So what's you're all perfect? You, you what? You're all you're all robots. You're all everyone has different opinions. You know, and you know, I've been in a business where, you know, you could tell there was a clear differences of opinion, and due to personalities involved, uh, some issues were never ever raised, but they always bubble. So I think anybody who, first of all, I think anybody who believes their culture is right, is wrong, <laughs> because I think one of the strengths of cultures to me is that they're always moving forward. Um, you know, there are there are lots of things that have changed in the world and particularly in the world of business since COVID. 
that are never going to go back. And so that's that's an, a, maybe a real example for me of where your culture would need to change. Um, and so I just think that it's about recognising the issues. And also one of the, I suppose, problems, coming back to the point of a founder, is in my experience, and it doesn't matter whether you're a founder or you're an MD, if you're in a senior role, accept the fact and understand the fact that what you hear is what most people think you want to hear. It's not always the truth. And be bl- and don't be blinded by the kindness. Don't be blinded by the respect. You know, I do think that a lot of that has changed. I think there are generational issues now where people are happier to raise concerns and that creates some issues with issues. But, you know, I just think that you've got to look at it in reality and say, are we all living the values? And maybe that's the best link I can say because... I know lots of business owners who will use that phrase. We've got a great culture. And I'll say, interesting, what, what are your top four or five values? And they can't tell you one. So for me, unless you can be clear and um, explain and communicate your values and recognise where your values are being lived and maybe not lived every day, I don't believe, and I accept it's only my view, that you have a strong culture. And it's one of those things that's never complete, isn't it? It's, it's constant improvement, constant work in progress and I think the question is not just are you always living up to your values but where are we not because no yeah. business is 100% of the time every day every person living up to all of their values so having the values first but then continuing to stress test them and being open to finding out where we're a bit weak because we're all weak in some areas so it's asking those probing questions isn't it and that thing about we never argue I would argue is unhealthy in itself because that's not the sign of a good culture. No. If maybe arguing's the wrong word, but being able to debate and disagree, if everybody's just agreeing all the time, that's a sign of probably a, a fluffy culture that doesn't practically probably work in business. I mean, we all know of, and we've all probably worked with, um, you know, cultures where the the senior people you know wanted yes men i mean we can you know we can joke about all the things that are going on in in you know houses of commons and the uk parliament system at the minute but part of that issue is that classic which is somebody's ambition is driven by their ability to say yes to somebody else um potentially rather than do the right thing and we're not going into politics but you get my point i'm trying to make um but there is there is something about you know for me that transparency that ability to challenge um you know, you've heard me say many times when we're talking either in our own business or in other businesses where people feel I'm challenging. And what I will always say is, look, I'm, I'm seeking to understand first. I'm challenging so I understand. I'm not challenging from an, a, from an opinion. I'm challenging so I may, I may form an opinion. Uh, uh, and that is something that I think is important. And I believe that you know, the best teams have to find ways to have dispute resolution and, and have open conversations. I watched a fascinating uh, documentary last night, ironically, that had been recorded a long, long time ago, and it was about the uh, air ambulance service. And it showed there were what you'd call like the pre-flight briefing. And they sat there and they said, is everybody happy to fly? And I thought, what an interesting question. And they went on to say that basically, at that point, everybody has to then, has a duty to say... I've got to be honest, uh, I was up late last night with young Jack and I haven't had much sleep, or if there's a personal issue in their life, anything that's stopping them, when you think there's five people there going up in a helicopter to go and potentially save someone else's life, 
What matters is that they can perform to the best of their ability at that point when asked. And what they said was their experience had told them that any distractions were a risk for the team, not just the individual. And I found that fascinating. And, and I thought about it and I thought, you know what, I'm going to find a way to bring that into whether we sit in a button. No, uh, is everybody ready to fly? I, th I thought it was a fantastic uh, view of the world. Great. Well, it is that idea of not brushing things under the carpet, isn't it? And confronting issues, com confronting weaknesses in your business. And I think that's something that we've seen from the people that speak have spoken on this podcast is that they're looking for their blind spots, they're looking for weaknesses, and they're not emotionally put off by those things. They're actually attracted to them because they know that that's the way forward. Finding that weakness, finding that thing to work mm. on is, is, is the, way, the way forward. Great. What else in terms of common things that you think hold back businesses then we've talked about the founder mentality and the, the challenges of partnerships and we've talked about culture i think everything everything comes from those don't they i mean at the end of the day they are the uh you know the sort of you know foundation stones i would say that you know from and, and as a result of culture and say whether you've designed it your culture exists you know i believe that those businesses that you know have a vision have values and have a strategy succeed better you know that's just not my view there's lots of evidence and lots of data on that um you know you can go back now and there are lot again lots of evidence that shows even with uh, you know um, primary age school kids now where you know they'll do experiments and get them to write down something you know write down that you're going to do this this and this and it's that psychology you would have written it, it sort of makes it happen so i'm a big believer in um, value-driven business because you know that that will drive. That's either a result of your culture or it will create your culture. That's a big thing. The obvious thing is, you know, you can't have the best plan in the world. Um, you know, um, John Woodall's you know spoken and and, and openly and, and giggled slightly with his. You know, he'd done his Goldman Sachs work and said, and now it's sort of you know s collecting dust on on a shelf. Um, and you know, you, you you have to be able to execute. You have to be able to have the plan. And in fact, one of the things that I know this is not about. Um, you know, buying and selling necessarily, but the one of the things that when I I realised, uh, and I've seen it more and more, and when I've acquired business myself, it's not just everyone talks about investing in the management team. They're not just investing in those people; they're investing in their ability to execute, and that's the difference. And you have to understand that. And it's the same. You know, go back to the sports thing. We probably all know people that we thought were brilliant footballers, golfers, rugby players, whatever, and we see people now professionals. You know, so and so was much better. But could they execute when it mattered under pressure? That's the that's the thing. So execution really matters. I then think it's you know it's the team that you have, and I think the team has to be appropriate. Um, you know we we know as a, as an outsourced finance function that we have different roles to play based on where that client is on their business journey, and what's the appropriate resource for that moment in time. You know. I believe, and uh, you know, we we at, at Matt believe that you know one of the beauties of outsourcing is the fact that you can flex the resource you need, and you, and you get you know what you need when you need it. Um, but I also believe that in the staff. So you know, I've spoken before about there's a big difference between your startup mentality and your scale up mentality. And often, going back to your inertia, or what what stops people achieving their potential is that they keep with members of staff because they were there at the outset they keep with members of staff because oh you know uh, Derek's been here eight years or whatever it is um, and interesting enough actually I'll go, I'll go back to the, the, the first example I gave you uh, of that business uh, and that's probably because I now look at it differently with our finance function head on 
but the, the, the bookkeeper, the credit controller in that business, and I, and I was completely naive at this stage as to what that meant anyway, physically had ledgers, physically wrote in pencils, beautiful handwriting ledgers. But there's an example of, as that business and, and the mentor I mentioned that helped me in that business was a qualified accountant. He had been um, MD of Britvic many years ago. He said, you know, that's what needs to change. And it's those kind of things that the people, can they deliver for you at the time you need them to do? It's irrelevant how long they've been there. It's really interesting unpicking the backstory behind those things, isn't it? Because it's easy to undermine why somebody would have a credit controller in a, you know, full-time in a business, but it was probably a result of a, a symptomatic issue at the time. You know, the, the the business probably had an issue with credit control at some point. That person's come in to, to do a role, which is to get that part of the business working better. And then inevitably over time, they've been stretched and pulled into different roles that they possibly weren't appropriate for. Which brings me on to the next question, which is all about strategy. Because this word means different things to different people. And a bit of what you've talked about there, I don't know what words you would use, but it's about actually potentially being agile not having a plan that's indefinite, not making decisions that are indefinite and be ready to change things based on where you are on your journey and, and what's showing up. So how do you balance that with having a strategy, a clear strategy about where you want to go, but then making changes along the way? I think you need to understand um, what what you mean by strategy and what you mean by strategy for your business. I mean, you know, again, you've heard me say before that you know if, if you take the the literal definition of the word strategy, it will tell you that it is a plan of action. It's a plan of action designed to achieve a long term or overall aim. You know, and that's the analogy we've brought back with the podcast, the, the, with, the, with the map room. Um, but I think there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of BS. I'm going to say <laughs> there's a lot of smoke and mirrors when it comes to strategy through those people wishing to sell those services. But at the same time as a business owner, if you do not have that plan, how do you know where you're going? How do you know where you're going to start from? And potentially more importantly, how do you know when you've got there? You know, I think it really, really matters. But for me, I'd try and simplify it. And, and mine is always purpose, proposition, people and place. Okay, let's go there then. So you've got your, your four Ps. Purpose, first of all, then, to talk us through that. Purpose is is really, really simple. Why are you doing what you're doing? Particularly if you've founded that business or it's your business, what are you doing it for? You mentioned before it might be lifestyle, it might be to create something, but can you actually define your ambition? If you can't define it, is it a purpose or is it a uh, is it a hobby? And, and I can't think of a better word. Hobby's the wrong word, but I can't think of a better word there. So can you absolutely define it? And for me, defining it has to include what I've said earlier, the vision, the values, and the mission. You've seen me, Paul, work with a number of clients where we sit and talk about a plan, and we talk about a three-year or a five-year plan, and we sit there, and I sit there, and I say, right, guys, talk me through your vision and values, because if you can't do that, nothing else, and I don't want to get involved if you can't do that, because that is going to stop you achieving where you want to get to. So I, I, that's the thing for me. If you can't define it and just define your ambition in those in those ways, then I think you're really going to struggle to get where you want to get to. And there's a process for doing that, isn't there? So you're not ready to work with them and talk about the next things that we're about to talk about. But that doesn't mean that 
the business has lost hope. It can't be helped. It just means that there's work to do first on probably recalibrating what the purpose was, either why they set up in the in the first place or why they're going to continue with that business today because that might have changed from the uh, initial vision. Absolutely. And in most cases, it does. The reason people find found a business, particularly in the space we represent, is often, as I've said before, is to deliver a craft. And the vehicle is there as a sorry, the business is there as a vehicle to deliver that craft. But then they decide, oh, it could be something. So I'm not suggesting those businesses cannot be successful without those things. I'm saying that if you've got a destination in mind, and you and you want to get advice from us or somebody else or you know yourself and, and a plan. You've got to be able to define that plan because if you can't, if and I say this to most agencies, you know, most agencies will tell you it starts with a brief when they're delivering a, a solution to a client. Well, if you can't write that brief for your own business, where are you going to go? Mm. And just one more thing you said there, sorry, you said about what the business could be. You've, you've maybe over time realised that there's something else that the business could be, but it's whether that's what it should be whether that actually aligns to your own purpose and what you're looking to achieve. You know, the fact that you realise there's an opportunity, this could get bigger, it could achieve certain things, but is that actually in line with what you want personally? That comes back to values, Paul. Everything to me is values-driven. It has to always be values-driven. OK, let's move on to the second one then, proposition. Proposition is, again, really simple. You know, I'm going to use the words define again. Can you define your proposition? I used to always say that, you know, very often you'll see... Um, you know, the white van will drive past you on the M62 and there'll be a whole list of services down the outside. And over a number of years, that's now now called facilities management. But there used to be 20 services on the side of a van. I do think very often, you know, let, let's use the phrase, we, we use the phrase that we represent and we support digital agencies. So, you know, looking at nearly 120 different companies, if we had them all in this room, it, A, it'd be very tight, but if we had them all here they would probably all see themselves as doing something slightly different and a lot of their clients would see them as actually doing something different. So what is your proposition? And a place to start is how does your client see you? What do they buy from you and what do they recognise as your value add? And that's the proposition. Can you explain? People used to call it an elevator pitch. And they don't, again, and that's that's um, dampens it down and cheapens it. But you have to be able to explain to somebody in a way that they recognise the value, particularly if you're seeking someone to buy your services, that I get it. I understand what that person does. And that's if I'm interested in this, I talk to them. If I'm interested in that, I talk to those. Okay. People. People is um, it is literally what we said before. It's, it's defining your structure. It's de- and, it, and it's defining your structure in terms of there's your legal structure. You, you mentioned, you know, equity, multiple equal um, equity holders. But what's the actual leadership structure? What's the operational structure versus the leadership structure? You know, what is, if you're employing people, it's as basic as what's the line management. You know, again, there are cultures that, you know, I know, so, you know, we're a very open culture. Everyone can talk to anybody. Most people, particularly as you start to grow a business, you know, one of the things that, as you know, I, I always bring things back to sport. And there's a reason why sports teams have limited numbers. Because, you know, you can only, you know, 11 players, your sport, 13, mine, or 15. There's a reason why you only have that many. There's a reason why even when you look at some of the biggest team sports, NFL, they're in little groups because the communication gets so much harder the more people there are. So you have to have a structure in place. Otherwise, you end up with a free-for-all. So, And the other thing with people is obvious, which is, 
you know, and whether you're going to talk, you know, Jim Collins, good to great, all those kind of things. Get the right people on your bus. And that's about values. And I'm a big protagonist in values-based interviews for that reason. Don't employ the best technician. You know, there's a reason why Red Bull employ technician A and Mercedes might employ technician B because it's all about their ethos and what they do for that team. It's not whether they're the best brake caliper manager in the world. Mm. Again, what you should have rather than all the things you could have. Yes. Place? Place Place is one that... Place really interests me, and that's because it's changed. So place for me has always been, what is your competitive landscape? What's the battle... Let's go back to, let's go back to the map room. What is the battlefield you are choosing to currently compete on? And we can use those analogies of you have to win these battles to win the war, you might accept to lose battles to win a war. What is your target market and I often say that to lots of business owners because as you build that business we've all been guilty of accepting the project accepting the piece of work because it paid some bills rather than maybe it moved us along our strategic plan and one of the things that we know and we know evidentially from across as I say over 100 agencies is looking at those who specialize whether that's niche whether that's territory whether that's technology whether that's methodology whether that's practice delivery tend to have uh, a better growth pattern you know i'm not saying they're better businesses i don't mean that but they tend to say those businesses can accelerate faster because they're doing one thing really 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 well so this is about knowing your place and again taking the emotion ego aside out of it there's nothing wrong with having a more transactional business or knowing your place on the on the value chain or, or the supply chain. I think a lot of business owners are guilty of trying to be something that sounds and feels more aspirational rather than the thing that they can dominate in. Yep. I mean, that's a fascinating one. Do you dominate? Do you, do you participate? You know, I think there's one of the one of the risks is and I would this would have been me 15 years ago. This would have been me, Paul. You know, very competitive, had to do this, you know, had to win. You know, winning was the only thing that mattered. Not understand that actually, you know, I used to hate the phrase win-win. I didn't think that existed. And, of course, now I know it does and I was stupid for too many years. You know, the best example I can give you there is, you know, I was a, a part owner in a in a in in an agency. It happened to be a UX agency. But that business was on a design roster with, we're in Salford today. Look, I can see out this window the BBC. There was nine agencies on a roster. That business happened to, by the way, again, something that the founder of that business sh- should be very proud of, is that that business was the only business to be on the roster day one and when it finished. So it was three, uh, three three-year rosters, only business. But in the last three years, it's fascinating. The BBC grew that roster to nine agencies and for the first time included non-UK agencies. And where we would assume that company over there is a competitor of ours... They didn't see it like that. They saw us all as having nine very different propositions, whether it was our proposition or their um, internal recognition of our proposition, because they said these people are all specialists in the area. So we need this agency to solve problem A is number one. We need this agency to solve problem B is agency number two. And really interesting, where it was a big, big problem they believed that all those agencies could collaborate. And that's not something you would have assumed when you're filling in your, you know, tender response or whether these things work. And very often we talk about pitch responses with clients. It was the ability 
for an agency to collaborate with another. And when you think about that logically, it makes a lot of sense because the reason most clients go out to agencies is because they can collaborate with their staff. They're an add-on, they're a whatever. We could say that about our finance function. We can collaborate with an FD. We can collaborate with a bookkeeper. That makes a lot of sense when actually very often, uh, you know, business owners see themselves in competition, not what could we do together to move all our businesses forward. And there is that thing, I think you mentioned it there, about what you actually say versus what you do or how you're perceived versus what's actually going on internally. And often you'll hear business owners talking about the fact that they collaborate. I often see in this industry, a lot of agencies are not actually that collaborative. They talk about it because it's a buzzword, but our default, what you say as human beings, is to be competitive. And so when it actually comes to the crunch, they're not always as open and as collaborative as they, as they should be. You mentioned values a lot today, um, and you've done some amazing work with MAP uh, in, in this regard and helped us to formalise this and be, be true to, to what our values stand for. First, Two questions. The so first question is, just to reiterate, if you like, why values are so important. And then secondly, have you got an example of values actually in practice and, and values being used uh, to, to success? Okay, well... If I explain, as you say, you know, we've done a lot of work map on values and maybe that's a good example of, you know, a founder founded a business, you know, map had values when I was a client and as map changed and became a more mature, mature business, you recognised the fact that the values needed to change and the values need to change for the, the, the time and the place in, the, in map's journey, but also because as we were employing more and more people, it's how that team better perform so I think for me you know values is always about you know I mentioned value-based interviewing you know are you recruiting the people who are going to collect you use the word collaboration there Paul when we talk about agencies are it, it are all those people that we employ going to collaborate to deliver our proposition to the best of their ability and our capability and it doesn't matter what business you've got that's the difference between a business that's really going somewhere and those that are in, in different areas. Um, and we'll, we'll go back to the decision-making process before with if you don't have the right structure in, you know, multi-partner uh, areas. We all know of people that people there'll be people in that team that people will believe should go and nobody wants to bite that bullet. And that's because they're not true on the values for lots of reasons. So values to me matter. I think, you know, to, to give you an example... Um, I'm going to do what I always do, which is bring sport in. And I try to do that because I, I, I like to see the, the differences. But I think it, it sort of take, puts it in a bit more reality maybe than we always talk. Um, you know, we've always said we didn't want theorists when we start this podcast. So I don't want it to be some sort of business, um, you know, lesson. But at the start of this season, there was an amazing thing happened in the... So the, the Gallagher Premiership is the, the Premier League for Rugby Union, to, to use that strange foot script, that strange sport you follow. Anyway, Gloucester uh, are at home to Wasps, and these are, you know, well-known, um, you know, um, well-known top-performing sides. And at half-time in that game, uh, Gloucester, at home, are 21-0 down. Now, that is normally a lost game and uh, BT Sports have been doing this um, probability uh, forecaster which I hate anyway but you know it would have said 90 something percent you know uh, Wasps win. Wasps came out in the second half and scored 27 uh, points without answer. 
So they won that game 27-21. And that still remain that was and still remains today a record comeback at the elite professional reunion level. Now, fascinating. So fast forward after the game to the usual um, Ben Kay, uh, Austin Healy, Pundit communication side of the pitch. George Skivington, the, the coach, walks over and they say, what do you say half-time? Must have been the hairdryer moment. You know, who did you kick? Who did you? Must have given them two barrels. Very calmly, he said, no, it was really simple. I just said to them, guys, this is now about having trust and we're going to back what we've been working on and our processes. And I found that incredible. And a week or so after that game, I was listening to a uh, another rugby podcast, Loose Heads podcast, and I was listening to a Gloucester player who said, we sat there and said, guys, this is all about our values and our culture. And in the next 40 minutes, we're going to do nothing that goes against that. And I just found that so powerful. So that's the best example I can give you, Paul. It's not a business example, but it's the best example I can give you of where values and culture actually change a result and del- well deliver a performance and change a result. And the same is true in business. What I also like about it as an example is that it shows that no one's perfect. You're talking about elite sports here and they lost 21-0 in the first half and they probably lost their belief system and they probably lost sight of sticking to our processes and, and sticking to what we've been trained to do and our values and everything else. So it's going back to what we said before, it's accepting that at times we will fail, but fail forward, recognise where our weaknesses are, recognise where we're, we've maybe fallen off track. You know, that that phrase of we used to be good at something, it's be careful not to get too caught up in your own hype or your own success. There will be times where the wheels fall off and it's it's getting back on, isn't it? Which is what that's a perfect example of. It is, Paul, but what I'll say there is, you know, that's the beauty of half time. You know, you've heard me say sometimes in issues, okay, look, we're in the sheds at half time and we're two nil down or what we're gonna do, or you know, we're there's fifteen minutes to go, we're two one up, how are we gonna close this game down? And it's that ability of it. I do think that, you know, there has to be a a a process in your own business that gives you that half time. How do you give yourself time to stop and review? Because very often what you'll see is businesses are starting to make some bad decisions and then one goes into two bad decisions, becomes four. And and winning and losing, using a sporting metaphor again, um, you know, it, it is is about confidence and it does become habit forming. And I do think that, you know, if you go back bringing that that back had that group had that team not had those 10 minutes at half time to just go back recognize their values have that discussion they wouldn't have won that game so how do you find those reviews how do you how do you get half times in the dressing rooms in your business that's what i would ask and i would get people to really think about that thanks Stuart. that's really really been great i mean i said at the start of this that it's about client problems and client issues and things that people come to the table with but I think we've tried to simplify all of that by getting to the root of issues that business face, being centred around culture, being centred around values, being centred around people. I think it is. I think it's. Um, I think that's, you know, biz- business at the end of the day is a microcosm of everything else, and it is about people. Um, it is about you know our ability to interact as people. You use the word collaboration quite a bit. Uh, I think. You know, it, it's a, it is about those teams and a bit business is a team sport. Let's, you know, again, I use that analogy all the time. That's one of the reasons I do it. it is a team sport. And I've played in some brilliant teams and I've played in some poor teams. I've been a good team member. I've been a bad team member. I've had a good game. I've had a bad game. You've got to bring all that back in, you know, in, in, in my experience over the time I've done it. 
it is always about the people, the culture that you have. And I learned how I'm going to say late on in my probably um, later in my working career that values was actually what drove all those experiences. I didn't recognise it at the time. I thought it was, you know, we used to have competency-based interviewing, all those things. So the values to me are are the key thing. And I also think the point I mentioned before, and, and it really matters, and it wasn't a glib point about half-time, when we started in this conversation about the podcast, we spoke about the analogy of the map room and saying, look, you know, uh, the map, militarily a map was there to set a strategy out and then measure your success or failures against those objectives of the map. And we spoke about if you can't find your way to objective A, how do you find your way to objective B? Flip it the way. Imagine in the heat of battle, you know, the reason those people with the maps are not necessarily in the trenches is because you have to have that time away from the heat of battle to reflect and reconsider your position. And I think that's the point that I would say. That's like the half-time piece for me. I think... Very often I've sat in too many board meetings where everyone comes in, the door gets shut, everyone's actually too busy and this should be the most important thing of the day, but it's not. And it's rattled through an agenda and everyone goes away and says, yeah, we did those points, did you do your actions, did it take you minutes, yes, did. Go back to your, are you ready to fly? Are you ready to fly today? Are we in the right place to have these discussions? And that's the culture. And if we disagree, I've been guilty, Paul, of sitting there in a board meeting going, do you know what? I can't even. I haven't even got the time or the energy to argue that point, and that's wrong. So, you know, I think everything is about the people. Everything's about your culture, but your culture is an absolute result of your values and whether you have them or whether you allow them to exist. What a great way to finish! Thank you very much, Stuart. This stuff is not easy. I hope everyone's taken away some value from today. Running a, an owner-operated business, in particular, is is challenging. Having that switch between operator and shareholder i think the environment is really important working with the right people and working with people that take you away from the day-to-day and get you to focus on the plans and the goals that you have as a business owner thanks for joining us again the map room has been brought to you by map the outsourced finance function for digital agencies subscribe via your usual podcast app to never miss an episode